This is Hope FM. And today, as you heard, my special guest is James Orrin. I'm going to call him Jim because we're friends. <laughs> and we're going to be talking, reliving some pretty challenging days, uh, which are recorded in a book called The Hiding Place. So, Jim, just to set the scene for us, The Hiding Place, why, why was it written? I think, I think, I think the author felt that it was such an important story that it was one that really had to be told very carefully, very sensitively, given the subtleties, the nuances, the way that history had gone. And so I think the author felt that it was a job that she had to do because she recognised the importance of the story. Now, we're all aware that there is the alternative story, the Anne Frank story, which is very well known. And I believe now that it's been put into the school curriculum, which has kind of enshrined it in in the national psyche now. And it stands, as it were, to to represent um, a particular view of say, the victim or something like that. Now, this story, by contrast, isn't about a victim. This is about a triumph in in the face of tremendous adversity. And so I think it was necessary both to keep real history alive because there are those who would detract or debunk what actually happened and it was written, as it were, to refute that, and also to tell this tremendous message of not just hope, because there's, that is an important message, but I think it was the important message of forgiveness and not just to say the word forgiveness, but to actually put wheels on that and to say, well, if forgiveness is possible then there are other things that we have to take account of in order to make that realisable. Because forgiveness is very difficult to achieve. Now, we're going back to the Second World War, to the Dutch town of Harlem, Mm. and to the Corrie, uh, well, to the Ten Boom family, but principally the the two characters that we'll be discussing today are Betsy uh, Ten Boom and Corrie uh, Ten Boom, who are the subject, mainly the subject uh, of of the book. but from your perspective, you know, just set the scene as to why the, the Ten Booms did what they did and what did they do? Well, they saved Jews. And this, this one family saved over 800 Jews. Why did they do that? Because they did that at tremendous personal risk. When these two girls, sisters... Uh, Corrie and Betsy took the decision to hide Jews in their own home they had to they would have realized that they were putting the whole family at risk so they must have had a very compelling reason for doing that and the case the, the, the motive in this case was the plight of the Jew they only had to go out of their own front doors and they would see Jews being ill-treated that would have challenged them and they would have thought well you know what do we what do we as a family do about that situation these people are being ill-treated for no good reason 
They are simply the butt of Hitler's anger against a certain class of person. What are we going to do about that? And so the decision they took was taken in the light of the knowledge of all the dangers and what they did then was to um, make the necessary arrangements and preparations uh, to take these Jews in with all the attendant dangers. And of course they, they hid them in in the hiding place, which was a little, a very small cupboard, wasn't it, in, yes. their, in their home? Mm. Yes, it would take eight people. Uh, but the number of people they were able to, as it were, process, one group after another, one cohort after another, uh, amounted to quite a significant number of people, as I said, over 800 people in the end. Well, let's, let's hear from Elizabeth Sher. Now, Elizabeth, of course, is in her 90s, isn't she now? Yes. Uh, and uh, and we're going to hear her uh, basically talking about almost her compulsion to uh, to to write uh, to write the book. Uh, I th- agreed to do a book project without consulting John, my my husband John. Uh, so often we worked together. We wrote articles, well, mostly articles, and occasionally a book together, uh, but. The fact that I had signed on for a book uh, would mean that a year or two years or three years, however long it took me to do it, I would not be available for our joint projects. So it was a, it was a, a, a big commitment to make without checking with him. But the fact that I just said right away, yes, I'll do it, without you know, following our usual protocol of checking with each other... Uh, means I'm sure that I just had a sense that, that I had to do the book. So almost a compulsion there on the part of, of Elizabeth that she had to do the book, as she said there, Jim? Yes, because as she pointed out, she, as it were, threw over the normal protocol that she would have had with her writing husband, a writing partner. They did everything together. They wrote many articles, as she said. They wrote books together, some of them really quite famous. And yet on this occasion, she departed from all normal practice that they, that they followed uh, as writers, because obviously if they're writing as a team, then they have to be able to work together, they have to work their schedules together. But on this one occasion, I would imagine the publisher approached her and said, look, we've got this particular book, we feel that... There is, uh, there is a good reason for us to be able to approach you on this particular project. And, you know, we need to know fairly quickly, is this the kind of book that you will write? Now, she does give an insight elsewhere as to perhaps why she adopted this particular project. It would appear that at the time of writing the book, it would have been somewhere in the late 60s, 70s, something like that. It would appear that the, um, as it were, the Holocaust denial was beginning, to, was beginning to come up. And she was concerned about this because she knew that there had been a Holocaust. And I think, like quite a number of other writers who've written on, on, on this particular on this particular theme. She felt a sense of uh, history being betrayed uh, and she felt that this was morally wrong. 
And so I would imagine that that would have given her one of the reasons for, as it were, taking this particular project in the way that she did, very quickly, without too much discussion or without any discussion with her husband. And thus we have the book we have. Now, we turn our attention now to uh, a, a close friend of, of, of the Ten Booms, and that was uh, Yanni van der Klees. Of course, there was a 45-year gap uh, between them, but even though I think Yanni was about three whenever these events happened, am I right in saying yes. that? Uh, that? That she still has memories, actually, of, of the horror of those days. Let, let's hear from her herself. I remember well... Soldiers coming into our house with bayonets drawn and sticking them in the wall and trying to find any hiding places, maybe. And I was petrified. I remember burying my 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 head in my mother's skirt because I was I was so afraid. There were lots of things like that. And also, as a child, I knew immediately that there were things that he didn't talk about. I knew there was an old man going to church every night and although nobody had told me, at least I can't remember, I don't think they would, I knew that he went to listen to Radio Orangia, as we call it, Queen Wilhelmina was in London, and broadcast every day. I remember all the men having to leave the church suddenly and the fear that that gave us as children and I suppose our mothers as well. Those kind of things. I mean, my first, the first eight years of my life, although, of course, I can't remember back to babyhood, but those years were filled with fear. Yes, a lot of fear. And that says it all, really. Days that were filled uh, with fear in, in Nazi, uh, you know, uh, Holland, as it, uh, as it was then. Let's have our first piece of music. Now, this is winter. Do you want to say why you've selected this one, Jim? Yes, because I wanted to, as it were, underline the idea that there are very courageous people, not just the Ten Booms, but there are people who show courage in the face of difficulty in many, many different circumstances. So I've chosen this first piece of music, uh, Winter from the Four Seasons by Vivaldi, but I've chosen it to be played by uh, Anne-Sophie Mutter, a German violinist, uh, no particular significance in that, but she had a particular idea, a particular message, and the message was that she wanted to take classical music into an unusual place. The place she had in mind was a nightclub in Berlin, So to take classical music played by a violinist with an ensemble of about 10 people would be quite a challenge. It was quite a courageous thing to do. What she did, actually, she approached ZDF, Seite Deutsche Fernsehen, and uh, it was a television station over there, and they liked the idea, and they said, yes, we'll cover it. Now, you're suggesting that we do this just once, but for the sake of the experiment, as it were, what we'd like to do is to do it over two nights. So you can shock them the first night, but the second night, let's see if anybody turns up. And it turned out that she had the same audience the second night. 
they were so appreciative of the fact that she'd done the unusual and she'd taken her courage in both hands. She'd, as it were, put her reputation as a, as a classical violinist on the line and gone into a nightclub. So it was a very interesting social experiment. But to me, it was commendable because uh, it was unusual and she was prepared to do it. So like the Ten Booms, there are circumstances in life when uh, you, you have to do something that's very different. Well, of course, that was Vivaldi there's winter. Of course, it was winter there in times of the, you know, there were, there were dark days uh, that we're, we're calling today. Uh, we said about uh, uh, Jana uh, having a, a special relationship uh, with the Ten Booms, and, uh, and of course, it was quite, there was quite an age gap. How did they, how did they meet, Jim? Corrie Ten Boom, after the war, uh, held a Bible school or a Bible study regularly uh, and it, it was within as it were reaching distance for this lady Yanni van der Klees and I would imagine there must have been some kind of wartime empathy even though this Bible study was running after the war well after the war but there must have been some empathy on the part of Yanni van, uh, van der Klees because she would, as we heard in the last uh, in the last clip, uh, she would remember the war. She would remember the danger. She would remember that she had certain experiences that were, in some ways, reminiscent of what Corrie had been through. She, of course, was a child, and but. As a three-year-old child, because the Germans came in 1940, she was, by, she was born in 1937, so she was a mere three-year-old by the time that the Germans arrived and they were doing their house-to-house -house searches and all the rest of it. But she would remember the terror of those days. And I think, therefore, that when somebody like Corrie ten Boom was giving Bible study and giving an explanation of how to manage fear and how to manage things like warfare, uh, I think that would have drawn her into that particular circle. Well, let's listen to her recalling those days. Well, I met her when she was already in her 70s. You know, I, I, she's 45 years older than she was 45 years older than I am. So when I was in my early 30s, she was in her 70s. And from that period, I, I know her and I know her best. I never had tea with her in her home or anything like that, but she held Bible studies in a center, in the center of Holland, really, uh, not far from Utrecht. And uh, we were young Christians, all of us, and uh, we were riveted by not just her stories, I mean, we heard them, but she gave Bible studies. And what struck me about her, that first of all, she was a very ordinary, a little bit old-fashioned looking woman, but then maybe a 30-year-old looks like that at a 70-year-old, I don't know. But she, she spoke with a kind of authority. I, I, 
all of us, I was not the only one, we instinctively sensed that she knew what she was talking about. She wasn't just taking the scriptures and sort of, no, no, she had proved it. She knew what she was talking about. She, she knew what it was to trust God. She knew what it was to be in danger and know herself to be protected by God. What she was teaching us was richly spiced with stories from her experience, but it was, it was with a, an authority that can only be transferred by a person who was, who's tried it and proved it, you know, um, who was able to, to speak and explain the scriptures knowing that she has gone through this herself. Yes, that's the way she struck me. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Jana herself is in her 70s now, isn't she? She's 84. 84, gosh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, of course, she wasn't the only one who had memories because Elizabeth recalls her. Uh, Corrie wasn't the easiest subject because Corrie didn't really like to talk about negatives. And of course, the whole no. hiding place story was was about negatives, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, obviously there were many, many positives there and miracles and so on that that happened. But but uh, she she had a hard time getting Corey to talk about it, didn't she? Yes, she did indeed. But um, and I, I think that Yanni would have, as it were, sampled or sensed the same thing. She does say that when she was in teaching mode, that. Her stories were richly spiced with her experiences. But, of course, by that time, the experiences had been enshrined in, in the book and, uh, and you know, uh, it, they were kind of set. But, um, yes, I, I think it's, it's important that we understand the problem of the writer, which was Elizabeth Sherrill. And... Uh, you, you know, Elizabeth did have some difficulty because Yanni came at this in a way from a rather unusual theological background. Uh, she came at it from a, a background where the children were brought up only to speak of the very positive things that had happened. Anything negative... Uh, they didn't want attributed to God in any way, and so consequently, it was a tri- It was almost a triumphant kind of life. It was one where they were full of praise and thankfulness to God, and to actually say that well, bad things can happen and do happen, was something that they didn't really want to get too involved with. And so, when Elizabeth Sherrill was doing the research. She came up against this resistance, as it were, in Corrie-Tenboom. But the dilemma for the writer was, well, how am I going to get the story? But I've got to paint the black in order to show the white. And I think she had to um, speak with Corrie on several occasions and say, look, you know, don't be too concerned about this because... When we have finished the story, we will have given both sides. We will have acknowledged that, you know, the bad things do happen, but God is more than able. Well, let's hear from Elizabeth herself talking about the challenges of having Corey as a subject. 
it was very hard to get her to talk, to start to talk about negatives. Um, I had to draw each one out of her just by, uh, just by insisting over and over again, tell me about some, the time that it didn't work. Tell me about the thing that went wrong. She'd been brought up to believe that you didn't tell those things, that that, that was dishonoring God. And I had to try to persuade her, and I think eventually she understood for the, for the sake of her story, um, it would have no, no meaning. It would not have, have any kind of impact uh, if, in fact, everything had been smooth for her, if, if things had not gone wrong, if, if a terrible evil had not arisen in the world. Uh, she was sure that God would prepare you for those things, too, because she had believed that he would prepare us for whatever came, and she did not dream that whatever came would be quite as as demanding. So as uncomfortable as it was for Corey to share those more negative and darker things of her experience in Ravensbrück concentration camp, uh, Elizabeth eventually got her to share those things, but not without a struggle. Let, let's have your next piece of music, uh, which is Legend of Milano. Yes, again, I've, now I've chosen this because I think it took a woman of courage to introduce a piece of classical Mexican music uh, into the repertoire of Western classical music. It was, <clears throat> it was some ways taking a risk because the Western ear isn't necessarily tuned to this kind of music. But I think this particular piece of music is interesting because it's uh, both sensitive, it's fast, it's what they call a tone poem, I understand, and what it does is to tell a story. Uh, The particular story is it's a legend that comes from uh, a people group, the Miliana, and it is just unusual in in some of the in some of the rhythms uh, and you'll see for yourself And today, uh, Jim Wilshire and I are recalling the story of uh, of the Ten Boom family, particularly of Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy, who actually were imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp, where sadly Betsy died, all of it as a result of hiding uh, Jewish people within their homes during the Second World uh, World War. Uh, of course, some people would maybe question their motive, <clears throat> you know, for doing that. For example, you know, w- were they out to convert? the Jewish people, was that their motive, Jim? I think it wasn't. I think the inspiration for the family went right back to the Bible and the family's understanding of the Bible. The family had a deep understanding of the Bible. They used to, uh, they used to have a daily Bible reading for which life stopped until that Bible reading had been completed each day. And so I think that what that brought home to them was the place of the Jew in the Old Testament. The fact that the Jew had been the one who had been chosen, who had been privileged. And when they saw the Jew being abused by the Nazis in 1940 onwards in Holland, I feel in a sense that they responded to 
to what they felt was the travesty of the position that God had called this pe these people to. Now, the interesting thing was that uh, Corrie and the family, they weren't Jews. They were, they were Gentiles. But because they were in the Christian tradition, which had come from the Jewish tradition, they felt, in a sense, that they owed it. And so um, when they saw the Jews being abused, then they felt, that, well, we can't just stand by. We have to actually get involved. We actually have to do something. Well, let's hear Elizabeth's reflection uh, on motive. Yes, well, as, as a Christian, she uh, acknowledged the Jews as God's special people, uh, as a chosen people, and had always... Uh, her her brother was a uh, was a an ordained minister uh, who ministered to the Jews, but he never he never tried to to convert them to Christianity. He just he 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 wanted to serve them uh, and as our older brothers, as people who had come first to the knowledge of of, of the one God. Uh, so out of gratitude to to Jews. Her brother spent his life just uh, caring for any Jews that that he was a able to help, and uh, and that's the that was certainly Corey's position too. Now, clearly, uh, it was it was saving Jewish people really from the concentration camps, from from the humiliation, of course, which was very much part of the way uh, they were treated during. Th those days. I mean, we're going to go on in, in a moment just to the whole theme of of love and forgiveness and and so on. But Jim, just set say a little bit more about the horrors. You know, uh, uh, why it would have been so so difficult even to think forgiveness because of what was happening and what did happen to you know to the people, Jewish people during those days, and indeed to anyone who would come to their aid. Well, it's very difficult for us to think, as it were, back to those times. Hitler had come to power in 1933. Within two short years, he had passed what we call the Nuremberg Laws, 1935. Now, these Nuremberg Laws prescribed the Jew from meeting in the normal ways and to socialise in the way that they'd always had done. They were as it were, excluded from parks, restaurants, cinemas, things like that. And so from 1935 onwards, the Jew was, as it were, marked as being different. Now, I think what characterised uh, one of the things that grew within Nazism was the growth of anti-Semitism. It was bad enough in 1933. It was worse in 1935. But as the years moved on, so the situation got worse and worse, and we then saw um, the bad sciences that had been experimented with in Germany being applied to the Jewish community. Now, Corrie ten Boom's room, this secret room in the house, came online in 1942. But I wonder if it's significant that in 1942, there was also a conference in Berlin. And at this conference, 
we have one of the key Nazi figures, a man who is widely tipped to be Hitler's replacement, Reinhard Heydrich. Now, this man was evil. He was heading up many, many evil initiatives. Now, he chaired that meeting. <coughs> at that meeting were at least 20 people, most of them bureaucrats. And what he neatly did in that meeting was to transfer the responsibility from those in Berlin who wanted to see through what we call the final solution, the ridding of Europe of every single Jewish person. He transferred that responsibility to these bureaucrats by getting them involved in the nuts and bolts of how you get 11 million, not 6 million, but 11 million people in conquered lands to the execution centres. Now, this is the way things, as it were, came, were, had grown by 1942. But as I said... In 1942, it was almost like God made a move. And he raised up, well, it wasn't just the Ten Boom family. There were other families who were taking Jews as well. And it was like, as it were, a move of God in 1942 to counter what was going on in Berlin. Because what was going on in Berlin was very powerful. Because by the time the bureaucrats had agreed that they wouldn't question the ethics of what the Nazis were doing, but they would actually assist them by moving trains from A to B, then uh, God, as it were, came along and said, right, well, that's what you plan. Now, this is what I'm going to do. Looked at, the, the Nazi plan appeared to be far more powerful, much bigger, uh, you, you would think that there would be nothing to combat that. But as events later showed, it was the little people, the Corrie Booms, the families, the people who resisted. As history showed, these were the ones who were in the end triumphant. And the 11 million that were planned actually came down to 6 million. Now, six million is terrible, we know, and people will carry the responsibility for those six million. But it wasn't the 11 million. And in fact, it would have been more than 11 million because that's only what the statistics showed at the time. But, of course, had Hitler been successful in his bid for world conquest, then the number of 11 million, which applied only to Europe and the conquered lands, would have grown exponentially. And of course, you know, in in the Nuremberg Conference and, and these other uh, gatherings where these plans were made, ethics didn't really come into it, did it? No, it was taken for granted that what Hitler said was true. Uh, I mean, his motivation, he said, went back to his hatred of communism. And he said that the Jews were behind communism, therefore the Jews were responsible for communism, which was going to be the arch enemy as far as he was concerned. But it was, as it were, the, um, the, the, the recognition that Germany had lost the First World War and, in part, 
he held the Jew to be responsible for that. It's a very complicated story. But it gave him a second, as it were, laudable reason for targeting the Jews as he did. But the reality may actually be very different. Spiritually, it may be that Hitler became, as it were, possessed in some kind of way so that his natural enemy would be the Jew. From a spiritual point of view, his natural enemy would be the Jew rather than the arguments that he put up, which he based, he said, in history. And, of course, against that background, uh, uh, Yanni talks uh, really about how, in the midst of that darkness and injustice, that, that somehow uh, love and forgiveness prevailed. You know, it, it always strikes me that, you know, she never... We don't read that in the book, and it never came through to me either, that she was trying to, to convert people. Uh, do it my way, you know, come come my way. She had a message, and in post-war Holland, that was very, very needed. You need to forgive. If you don't forgive, you will torture yourself to start with. And no, it's not easy. I mean, forgiveness is, a, is, is, is nothing to do with your feelings. If you wait until you feel like it, you might never do it. But it's an act of your will to forgive, and then God gives you the strength to do that. Now, she illustrated that, and there is a good illustration in the book about her meeting one of the cruelest guards that they had met in Ravensbrück, and she met him in Munich in Germany when she was speaking, and she struggled to forgive that man. And, you know, it was only when she realized, well, God, it's your forgiveness. I've got to be willing. So when she put her hand out, I mean, that was it. And she did it. And, you know, she really took that illustration a lot to help people in Holland who really carried a grudge. I mean, what were families like when, you know, I know in one village, in one day, Um, the the Nazi army shot every man in that village. So there were people that had lost a husband and maybe one or two sons in one go. You know, that was hard to cope with and and people needed to to learn to forgive. And that's what her strong message was in in Holland, in post-war Holland. And even although I must have heard her several years after the war, she still preached that, and we still felt it was needed. Uh, you know, I knew it was needed. As she preached that love is strong, if you, but of course, if you don't forgive, you can't love. You know, I mean, those sort of things are interlinked. I mean, reading Betsy's, reading Betsy's account in the hiding place, of having a heart for the guards who were so cruel for them. She loved them and she even talked to Corrie about getting some kind of center for them after the war so that they could experience God's love. Wow, that takes something, you know, but it's the love of God that she learned to tap into. You know, we will never have that kind of love. I will never have that kind of love or never have that kind of forgiveness. But, you know, there is an ocean of forgiveness with God and there is an ocean of love with God. And she learned 
through experiences and in weakness, tap into that. And then she, she was able to do things that, you know, that are quite astounding. Well, that was Yanni uh, van der Klees talking about her, even in the darkest pit. I, I think it was Betsy said, there is no, no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. This is Hope FM. We go back to telling the story of, of the Ten Boom sisters. And of course, both sisters were imprisoned when they were caught, you know, hiding Jewish people in the hiding place, a little room in their home. And they were imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp. In fact, their, their father and other, their father died indeed, and indeed other members of the family uh, also died. But Corey was released through a clerical error. Some would call it America, and we'll talk about that a wee bit later on. But then uh, she began to travel the world, and in fact, her book *Trump for the Lord* tells that story. But she's in a she's in a, a meeting, and there she meets someone that an unexpected meeting it was, wasn't it, Jim? Yes, as part of her, as part of the delivery of the commission, she felt she'd been given by the Lord. She travelled widely and uh, she had to travel to Germany. That wasn't the easiest place for her to go back. But it was part of the commission. And on one particular evening, she was taking an evening service uh, at a church in Munich. And she'd been speaking uh, for quite some time, relating her experiences, this time, remember, to a German audience... Uh, for whom some of these things would be really distressing, quite distasteful, and yet she had the courage to do that, always, of course, giving glory to God. Now, when she came to the end of her delivery, they sang the final hymn, and then it was an opportunity for people to come up to her, and several people did, and I would imagine some of them thanked her very warmly. Some of them commended her for her courage to speak as she had done. And then she became aware, out of the corner of her eye, of a man dressed in a smart suit, and he was waiting almost in the shadow of one of the pillars in the church. And gradually she made her way toward this man, and as she made her way toward him, so he stepped from behind the pillar out of the shadow until they were face to face and then began a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, she understood that she had come face to face with one of the cruelest, one of the most sadistic guards who had been at Ravensbrück concentration camp when she and her sister were prisoners. So what was the man doing in the church? Well, the reality was that this man had been converted. The man that stood before her was no longer the same man that had abused them in the concentration camp. And he came with that awareness. He came with a sense of being a changed man, a forgiven man, a man who could meet her now with equanimity. That was the reality. That was the expectation that he brought to that situation. Now, her perception was very different. 
She had in mind the blows that had rained on a sister who was so weak that she was unable to produce the necessary work quota. She'd been cursed, kicked, abused, hit by this particular man. Suddenly, here she was, faced with the fact that she had to relate to this tormentor, and she couldn't do it. He was holding out his hand in friendship. She couldn't respond. And it was like one of those arrow prayers. She prayed, look, Lord, I just cannot, I just cannot take this man's hand. You are going to have to do this. What happened then was, as she described it, it was like a bolt of electricity went from her shoulder through to her hand and drove her hand forward. By the time she was, her hand was in contact with his, her perception had changed tremendously. She'd undergone some kind of conversion herself in that moment. And what she realised had happened was that she hadn't got a manufactured love for this man. It was a genuine one. And then she remembered the prayer. Oh, I prayed that I would be able to relate to this man. And what she realised then was it was the love of Christ himself for this individual flowing through her. Well, let's hear from the author of the book, Elizabeth Sherrill, uh, reflecting on that same story. Well, he, he came to her with... She had been uh, travelling at this point uh, in, in Germany with the message of forgiveness. And he came up to her afterwards just beaming and said, oh, you know, I'm so glad, Fraulein, that, uh, to learn that I've, I've been forgiven. And, and he held out his hand wanting to shake hers and she just she just said I, I she recognized him he was not not only had he been at the camp where she was but he had he had actually struck Betsy at one point and so he was if, if, if she ever hated anyone he was the he was the one she hated but he had his hand out and so she said well uh, she uh, silently she prayed Jesus I can't do this, but you can. And she put her hand out, and as she did, she felt this. She said it was like a, like a bolt of lightning traveling down her shoulder and her, through her arm and into her wrist and into her hand as she, as she reached out and took this man's hand, and with it, with this, uh, physical f- sense of, of of some electric charge she felt a great love for the man. And she realized that this was Jesus' love. She'd said, Jesus, you do it. And so he not only let her take his hand, but he, he filled her with the love that he was feeling for this man who had been so abusive. And of course, that amazing love and and that miraculous experience that Corey had is summed up in your next piece of music. I'll let you introduce it, Jim. Well, the next piece of music I've chosen is the hymn Blessed Assurance by Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was blind. She'd been blind from birth. And yet she was able to write these kind of words. 
Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. In other words, she was looking forward to heaven. She realized where this had, where this had come from. Purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And she was able, as it were, to transcend the limitations of her life being blind, she was able to overcome all that and to see, remember she was blind, but to see with spiritual eyes the glory that was ahead through the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Well, of course, that is that great hymn, Blessed Assurance. And uh, even in the midst of darkness, there's always hope. And indeed, in the Ten Boom story, there were many, many miracles which are recorded. Maybe if you could uh, share some of them, like, for example, the little vitamin bottle that, in fact, uh, Betsy uh, and Corey were, were able to take into the, the camp, and uh, it never ran out, did it? <laughs> No, it was a miracle, really, that they had the bottle of vitamin concentrate in the beginning. I mean, at the moment they were arrested, the arresting Nazis would have given them a very difficult time back in their own home. How they had the presence of mind to snatch up this minute bottle of vitamin concentrate under those arresting circumstances is in some ways a miracle itself. But by the time they <clears throat> by the time they got to Ravensbrück and they were being admitted into the system there, the job was, well, how when you're undressed, when you're naked, when you've no clothes, how are you going to secret this bottle of concentrate which you're desperate to get in there? How are you going to get that in? And in some ways, that was the result of one of these quick prayers. Lord, help me to get this bottle in. But then there was, the, there was the miracle, if we can call it that, there was the miracle of the smuggled Bible. While they were smuggling the small bottle of concentrate, they also realized that they needed the word of life. And they wanted to get a small Bible that one of uh, Corrie's sisters had given them, very small, very, you know, you'd almost need a magnifying glass to read the print. But again, they had to get this past the guard. How was it done? Well, a Bible, however small, would be visible in the hand. And yet at the critical point of admission, the guard's attention was distracted and they were able to get this Bible through and then after they'd gone through the checkpoint, the guard resumed the normal uh, interaction. The normal interaction with other with other prisoners. Of course, there was the uh, the miracle of how Corrie, who was rostered to be um, to be exterminated in one of these extermination centres, how within days of her being loaded onto another transport, presumably to be taken to. Uh, Poland or one of the centres in Germany that was coming online, well, she was released. And uh, again, it's, you know, these things are difficult to explain 
in our normal world other than to say, well, God is involved. Well, let's hear Elizabeth uh, Sherrill talking about the, the importance of those miracles. She'd always believed in the reality of miracles since, you know, the, she, she was brought up on the Bible. They, every morning in their house started with a Bible reading. Um, no, no matter what else was going on, no matter how busy, no matter what, the, the watch shop over which they, the, the, their family lived in, a, in, in the house above the, above the watch shop, and no matter how many customers were waiting downstairs um, to, to, to leave their watches for repair, uh, the Bible would be read, and whether it was a long reading or a short reading, it would, there would always be uh, the, the first thing that, that the family did. Uh, so she was very, very familiar with, with miracles and it was, not, was not astonished by them. She, was, she just accepted them as, as one of the ways that God works. Not a, not a frequent way, but uh, certainly a, something she recognized uh, as familiar and, uh, and non... Um, I wouldn't say non-miraculous, but non-surprising. Of course God would work a miracle. Well, let's have some more music, and this time from Tchaikovsky. Uh, I'm not going to play all of this piece. This is quite long, but, but why this? Well, this is the famous 1812 overture, and my mind, having looked at courageous women, we then went to the subject of war, And this is a piece that people often associate with war. Uh, It was written in the 19th century, and it was uh, Tchaikovsky's answer to the failed attempt to attack Russia by Napoleon. And I've chosen this particular version because it has a choral aspect. And when you hear those voices, there's there's almost something that's reminiscent of the Requiem. And what it reminded me was that the human toll that there is in warfare. Uh, The war films don't usually show the human toll, the refugees and the the deaths and that kind of thing. And the other reason is that the particular orchestra in this version is the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which, of course, is uh, where Elizabeth Sherrill lives. She lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, of course, as you heard there, that's the excerpt from Tchaikovsky's 1812 uh, Overture. But uh, as time is passing by quickly, we wanted to get more into the story. Uh, and, of course, we were recounting the story of Corrie and Betsy uh, Ten Boom and how they were in, imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp. <clears throat> of course, one of, of Corrie's great uh, challenges was her sister because she probably of the two uh, uh, you know Betsy was the stronger spiritually uh, but but Corey wanted to protect her because she was also the weakest physically uh, Corey was stronger physically but of course she couldn't do that and, and eventually of course her sister was to die <clears throat> and that would have caused Corey some distress but then something happened Jim what was it that happened Corrie had a vision. It was a vision 
of a sister in paradise being comforted, rather like the story of Lazarus in the New Testament, where having had a difficult life in Ravensbrück and having died under the lash, as it were, of Nazism, she saw her sister after her sister's death, as it were, in a glorified form. She recognised her sister, she knew it was her sister, but she didn't see the body, the corpse, that she'd actually witnessed in the death house of a hospital. What she saw was this glorified body of her sister. It was as though her sister was again a young woman. Now, the last glimpse that Corrie had had physically and on this earth was in the hospital. Betsy had been admitted. She had to be, as it were, carried in. And after a day or two, it was a very short time, she was laid out as a corpse among a ro- in a room lined with corpses. And because she knew the orderly, she was able to actually get into the hospital. She had to go round the back. She had to climb in through the loo window. And that room itself had other corpses in it. And the orderly had to take her into the room and there she saw her sister. So you can imagine that having seen her sister in that emaciated state of advanced starvation and advanced privation, to see her sister as a young woman glorified in heaven would have been of immeasurable comfort to her. And here, uh, Yanni van der Klees uh, also uh, recounts uh, that, that vision that you've just spoke about. It must have been immensely comforting to her, to her. And, you know, sometimes God allows us to see those things and to, to be comforted by them. Um, and I think it was to her. I mean, to have a sister that she was so close to. And although Betsy sounds like the weak one in the hiding place because she was she was physically weaker, uh, she was her older sister whom she, you know, Corrie took care of her in the camp. But 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 Betsy was spiritually the stronger one, and uh, and she leaned on that. And you know, for. For Betsy to die in those dire circumstances, I'm glad that her glimpses, uh, the glimpses in her memory, are not of seeing an emaciated sister lying on a, on an awful cum bed. But you know that 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 her memories of her, her vivid memories, are very different. And you know, I'm glad for her that that happened, and I'm sure it was a great comfort to her. Yeah. Let's have your next uh, your next uh, piece of of music. So this is uh, this obviously is uh, John Williams, isn't it? Yes, we we always think of John Williams now as being associated with that film Schindler's List, a film that uh, was made, as it were, to rebut any Holocaust denial. And I've chosen this particular piece because. Uh, it's by it's the the orchestra is being conducted by another South American conductor, but the violinist is the world famous Jewish violinist Itzhak Perlman, 
course that's the haunting theme there from the movie Schindler's List Jim it's really quite amazing isn't it that through all of what we know about the Holocaust that, that then and indeed now there are people who still deny you know the Holocaust ever existed but it, but it, or ever happened but, it, but it, against that of course you, ha- you have also German people who have gone out of their way to remember to ensure that this never happens again Well when we interviewed Elizabeth Sherrill, this is one of the points that she made. It was one of the motives for writing the book, to rebut the idea that the Holocaust had never happened. And she was very keen to, as it were, put the record straight, um, as was Steven Spielberg in Schindler's List. When uh, When Elizabeth Sherrill was doing the research... She was very aware of this feeling that was in some ways coming from Germany and in other countries where there was German sympathisers that the Holocaust had never happened. But after the war, she was greatly heartened because she met groups in Germany uh, where there was a real concern that history be set right These were predominantly younger people, mostly women, and they were Christian women who knew the truth of what had happened. And it was, they felt their responsibility to to make clear that, yes, the Holocaust had happened. Elizabeth Sherrill, in the interview that we conducted with her, made reference to this particular group. But I could just add that In my travels in Germany, when I've met German Christians, they have spoken to me of the Holocaust and of the Hitler times with deep emotion. I've never seen people so broken, as it were, at the thought of the level to which the country had sunk in those times. And so, among these kind of people, there is a determination that the record be kept straight. Well, let's hear from Elizabeth Sherrill herself. I was interested in the Holocaust and interested in what had happened during the war. Uh, This was a time when most Germans were in denial that the Holocaust had ever happened, that the persecution of Jews had ever happened. Uh, They, of course, had been defeated in the war, and they thought that this was just a scandalous story that was being spread a false story being spread by the victorious allies to make Germany look bad uh, and were in denial that it had ever happened. Uh, But there was one group in Germany, a group of women, in fact, it had been a prayer group that met in the little town of Darmstadt in Germany. Um, And this group of, of young women, mostly, mostly very young girls, had been part of this Bible study. And they came together after the war, those of them who had survived, because Darmstadt was heavily bombed by by us. That was one of the American areas. Um, And those who had survived came together and formed a group that became the repentant heart of Germany, 
the, 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 the place where Germans acknowledged what they had done, acknowledged the Holocaust, acknowledged the cruelty to Jews, and repented. They, if they were able to, to, to receive a Jewish survivor uh, of the camps, they would take that person in and clothe him and house him and so on. Uh, but mostly they were there to, uh, as, as, uh, as faithful prayer warriors and also just as, uh, as the place where the truth was told and, ke- and kept alive. You might indeed does God allow such terrible injustice and suffering to happen to, to his people? I think that was one of the themes that Elizabeth Sherrill wanted to explore in the book because in the Ravensbrück situation you're dealing with an extreme situation here where people can come down, as it were, to a very, very low level. So the question then is, well, why did God allow these two sisters, one of whom died under those under those circumstances, Why did he allow them? He could have saved them. He could have miraculously spirited them away from one of the uh, railway transports into which they were herded, and they would never have seen Ravensbrück as it was. So this is one of the questions, I think, that Elizabeth Sherrill wanted to explore. And I think the fact that God did allow it And we have to accept that there is evil in the world and it can be portrayed or displayed in very stark, very stark way. I think a message comes out of that. And I think this is what Elizabeth Sherrill had to, as it were, record in the book. The message being that, like Daniel, when you're in the midst of the furnace, God is not absent He's with you in the trial. Well, let's uh, hear from Elizabeth with a brief reflection on that question. Uh, I think it, she would have said it was within his permissive will, not, not something that he had wanted for them, but that something that he, was, he would walk with them through it. He, he would allow it to happen as he, as he does allow evil, uh, all of the evil in the world. But his his promise is that he will be he'll be with us as as we face the evil. And of course, as we sum up, uh, the amazing story is that evil did not prevail, uh, and, and even though there was great great suffering, I mean, it's just astounding. Was it uh, you know six million uh, Jewish people annihilated during the the period of the of the Holocaust? But the story of the hiding place is how, as I think Betsy said, there is no pit so deep that his love is 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 not deeper still and uh, uh, I, I think that Jani sums it up pretty well in a moment shall we shall we uh, listen to her as she as she does that you know sometimes it's a process and you have to you know you have to remind yourself all the time this is an act of the will to Lord, I haven't got it, but you have, you have. I forgive, Lord, because you've forgiven me. You might have to say that about a hundred times, but yes, I mean, eventually your emotions will follow, will follow what, what, you, what you believe, what deep down. And yes, 
And then, of course, peace comes with that. If you, if you can't forgive, you were forever tortured. And, and you know, it, it always comes up again. I've seen it in other people. I shudder when I hear people say, I'll never forgive him. I, you know, that is awful to me because that person that says that will have that awful torture in them all the time of that unforgiveness, which is like a cancer in someone's soul. But if you are able, I always say, learn to live in forgiveness. If you can forgive, then you can learn to, to love, and then the peace of God will come into your heart with forgiveness. So I see, I don't see them as separate identities, just preach love. I see that, you know, forgiveness and, 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 and peace and love are, are interlinked. Yeah. And of course, that pretty much sums up the story of the hiding place, that there is always hope uh, beyond, you know, even the most darkest times that any of us fear. Y your final uh, hymn that you've chosen uh, is A Mighty Fortress uh, is Our God, uh, Jim. Uh, why, why this one? This this hymn was written by Martin Luther. Martin Luther performed a tremendous service at the time. He transformed the church and brought revival to it. But in some ways he was a, a man of war. He lived in a time of unrest, contributed to it even, and this hymn, A Mighty, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is a reminder that God is there in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. We like, we like the, the pleasant places, we like the smooth meadows. But as history unfolds, sometimes there are difficulties, sometimes there are wars, sometimes there are contests between na nations. And as in Martin Luther's time, there were internal conflicts. It was almost like civil war. And so when Martin Luther penned these words, a mighty fortress is our God, he knew what he was speaking about. And I think it fortifies us to go into the unknown, whatever that is. Well, that, of course, is a clip from the hymn A Mighty Fortress is Our God, bringing us almost to the end of today's programme, but not before the fact that, that all of the clips and everything that, uh, that you've been working on over these past years is to retell the story in film. Uh, and the uh, uh, production is, is on the cutting floor, even as I spoke, and it should be maybe early 2022. Uh, why did you decide to do it, Jim? I felt it was an enduring story. It had been very successful as a book. It had been very successful as a movie. But I was conscious that there's a new generation who may not be as aware of the nuances and the subtleties of the story um, that much would have been missed if we don't keep these, these treasures alive. And so... I felt that it was somebody's job to retell the story in a way that would make it accessible. So I went to 
the, as it were, the last survivors, as it were, of people who remembered um, uh, Corrie ten Boom. I myself had done quite a bit of research. I've been to Ravensbrook. I've been to where the Corita, where the ten booms had their shop, and in a sense, I've been able to relive that experience, albeit vicariously myself. And I felt, therefore, that it perhaps came to me to be able to, as it were, try to draw the threads together and to bring out some of the poignant messages that are so necessary for today. We need to know how to forgive people. Everybody needs to know how to do it. And the question is, can you do it on your own? The answer is, no, you can't. You'll fail every time. Where does the help come from? It comes from the Lord. He's the one who has to fill you with his love. But there's a bonus. You do the first thing. You determine to show forgiveness. He comes in with his love to enable you. But the thing that happens then is that you gain peace. And that we all need. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. And, and look out for that. Are you, 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 the movie is coming in two forms, so you've got a shorter version, and that will be called The Hiding Place. But then the, the longer version has got a different title, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I've called it War of Two Worlds because it's the contest between good and evil. Yeah. So we will look look out for that, and don't worry. Uh, keep your ears tuned to Hope FM, and we'll tell you tell you where and when eventually you can you can see the movie. This is Hope FM.